It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? On April 29, 2020, a sprawling mass of powerful thunderstorms produced a single mega-flash lightning strike over the southern United States that was more than 477 miles long. This record-breaking massive flash of electric tentacles stretched from near Houston to southeast Mississippi. The record beat the 440-mile-long mega-flash that occurred over southern Brazil on Halloween of 2018. Using the newest weather satellites, the World Meteorological Organization announced that it had confirmed the mega-flash lightning record. The WMO also identified a world record for the longest-lasting lightning flash. It lit up the skies over Uruguay and northern Argentina for 17.1 seconds on June 18, 2020. Imagine that, Pastor Ross. One lightning strike lights up the sky for 17 seconds. That may not sound like long, but uh, hold your breath and picture a lightning strike for 17 seconds. And, well, that would put any dog under the bed. <laughs> Just <laughs> the brightness bright. of that. You could probably read with a flash of lightning that long. It's you wonder amazing. what kind of thunder it would produce. Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it makes me think about that verse in the Bible where Jesus is warning regarding his second coming. He's warning about not being deceived because he says there's going to be false Christs and false prophets. Now, let me read a little bit uh, to, to you of this. Uh, it's in Matthew 24, verse 23 through verse 27. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so he's telling us that uh, we don't need to be concerned about, um, you know, people say, oh, I'm Jesus, or Jesus came, or you get a news report. It says it's going to be like the whole heavens being lit up when he comes, and everybody's going to know it. I know, Pastor, that you spent some time in the Midwest. I have, and uh, boy, do they have those incredible electric storms. Mm. And sometimes when there's so much lightning and thunder, at night, it just lights up the sky. It's just amazing. Well, you can imagine the coming of Christ, how glorious that'll be. There's no way you can hide from that brightness of the second coming of Christ. We have a book talking about the second coming, and it says, Anything But Secret. That's the title of the book. You know, sometimes people are confused. They wonder if the second coming of Christ is going to be secret or quiet. Well, the Bible says just the opposite. It's going to be a noisy, glorious uh, event. And we'll be happy to send this book to anyone who asks. The book creating is called Anything But Secret, and the number is 800-835-6747. That is our resource phone line. 
You can ask for the book, and we'll be happy to send it to you. If you're outside of North America, just go visit the Amazing Facts website, and you'll be able to read the book right there online. Pastor Doug, we want to greet our friends who are joining us on Facebook and YouTube, also those watching on Amazing Facts TV, as well as Good News TV. And uh, we know that you're typing in your Bible questions. We're going to take some time at the end of the program to answer the uh, written questions that have come in. So welcome also those listening on satellite radio and various uh, radio stations. And we're glad you're part of our program tonight. Well, before we get to the Bible questions, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study the Bible. And we do pray that your spirit can come and guide us. Be with those who are listening, Lord, and lead us into a fuller and clearer understanding of what the Bible says. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Ready to go to our first caller this evening. We've got Tim listening from Michigan. Tim, welcome to the program. Tim in Michigan. Hi, Tim. You there? Thank you. Yep. Hey, how can we help you tonight? Um, Well, um, a little while ago, a fellow called in and asked if the rapture and the second coming was the same thing. And you said yes. And I was just wondering about that. Um, there's a couple of the day of the Lord. You, you know, you gave him First uh, Thessalonians four, and this kind of refers to uh, Zechariah's prophecy when his feet touched the Mount of Olives. Uh-huh. I was wondering if there was a timeline between that, between the rapture and when uh, what that prophecy was about. Yeah, the Bible tells us that there's actually a span of about a thousand years. Uh, called the millennium. The Bible refers to it as a thousand years between the first resurrection and the second resurrection. Now, when Jesus' feet touched the Mount of Olives, as you find in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, it says, His feet will stand on that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof. Now, one reason you know this is not when Jesus comes for the rapture. The Bible says during the rapture, he doesn't touch the ground. We are caught up to meet him. And he says, I will take you to the mansions that I prepared. And that's John chapter 14. But here he's actually touching the earth. So this is when he, some might call it the third coming. He's coming back after the millennium. And his feet touch the Mount of Olives. Massive earthquake creates a great valley. And the new Jerusalem actually settles in that valley. Then later, and you read it also in this chapter, the, the wicked launch an attack. You see that also in Revelation 20 against the city of God and fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. So yes, there is uh, actually a 1,000 year or the millennial period between his next coming and this uh, period at the end of the 1,000 years in Zechariah 14. You know, we do have a study guide that talks about the 1,000 years spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, and we'll be happy to send this to you, Tim, or anyone who calls and asks. It's called A Thousand Years of Peace. And the number to call for that is 800-835-6747. And again, you can ask for that study guide. It's called A Thousand Years of Peace. If you have a Bible-related question, the phone line here to the studio is 800-463-7297. That'll get you on the program for tonight. Next caller that we have, we've got uh, Marvis listening from Ontario. Uh, Marvis, welcome. Montreal, rather. First of all, thank you and for you because uh, for both of you, uh, for uh, according me to ask you my question. Yes. So my question is, when the door of approbation will close? Okay. Now, for our friends listening, when someone is talking about probation closing, 
They're referring to a time when life may still go on here briefly on earth, but the saved are all saved and the lost are all lost and there's nobody changing teams anymore. The people who are saved are sealed and saved. Pastor Ross, there's that verse in Revelation 22 where he says, uh, those that are just, let them be just still. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about another passage that's in uh, Genesis when Noah was told with his family to enter into the ark. He entered into the ark and God shut the door. All of the animals in Noah that were going to be saved were in the ark. The door was shut. All of the lost were on the outside and their destiny was sealed. Life went on for a few more days, seven days in this story. And then the rains came. So there may be a period of time, a brief period, just before Jesus comes, when all the saved are saved and all the lost are lost, and there's no changing sides anymore. Yeah, the verse referring to is Revelation 22, verse 11. It says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And then the very next verse says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. So the close of probation here takes place just before the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and most people believe that when the plagues begin to fall, that at that point, the Holy Spirit has been withdrawn from the wicked. And um, that's why they get you know, kind of berserk in, in their attempt to annihilate all Christians. When the seven last plagues are falling, at that point, we believe the saved are saved and the lost are lost and probation is closed. Okay, thank you for your call. Uh, Madeline is listening from uh, Kansas. Madeline, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for answering my call. I really appreciate it. And I love your show. Oh, thank you. Okay. So I've got a, a quickish question. So in, in the book of Ezra chapter 10, um, I don't know exactly how to word it. The lady who took my call, she helped me a bit. I know how I feel about it. And that's the confusion regarding it. So the foreign women and children, they were to be dismissed from the congregation. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, the Jewish men were not supposed to do this. They took foreign women, etc. But my question is, was there no provision, no way for, for those women, the ones who accepted Yahweh as their own God? I mean, we do see examples of Ruth and Rahab. Why did these women, you know, have to be dismissed? I mean, I, I guess I know why. The real question is, was there a way that they could have been allowed to stay and not been sent away? Yeah, this is a difficult passage. And just for our friends that are listening, uh, you find this in Ezra chapter 10, and it talks about it in, uh, well, it, it mentions them by name when you get to verse 18. But the, the whole reason they'd been carried off into captivity is they had compromised their beliefs and stopped worshiping God and began to worship idols. So now, after learning their lesson 70 years, they come back to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, and the leaders start to marry pagan wives again. And Ezra's going, this is how we got into trouble. Now, these are pagan wives that are still worshiping pagan gods. It's kind of like, you know, Ahab was influenced by Jezebel. Ruth had accepted the god of Naomi, and Rahab had accepted the god of Salmon and the other spy. Well, there's two spies. We think one of them was named Salmon. It doesn't tell us in the passage that these wives had accepted Jehovah. So that's one thing. Another thing is, if they were told to put them away, keep in mind, Abraham was told to put away Hagar. But he gave her an allowance when he put her, he put her away. Uh, you know, they call that alimony today or some support. Um, but, uh, you know, it was causing all kinds of havoc in the family. This was a very drastic measure because the whole nation was at the point of a new birth and the new birth was going to be destroyed 
by these intermarriages with pagans once again. So they took pretty drastic measures. All right. Well, thank you for your call. Thank you, Madeline. Hope that helps a little bit. We've got Sid listening from Maryland. Sid, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Good. Thanks for calling. So my question is, why were people getting baptized before Jesus got baptized? Because when people get baptized now, they say that you are taking a stand for Jesus. And by getting baptized, Jesus set an example for his followers. Well, the first baptism was called the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. So John the Baptist was not saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was not saying, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. John was baptizing them uh, in the name of Jehovah, uh, you know, to just have a repentance and a return to God. An example of this is found in Acts chapter 19. Paul meets 12 Ephesian believers and he's preaching about Jesus. And they said, well, we haven't heard about this. He says, well, have you heard about the Holy Spirit? And they said, we didn't know if there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul says, into what then were you baptized? They said, John's baptism, meaning John the Baptist. So John baptized for probably a year and a half before he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. John then continued with his disciples to baptize until he was arrested, probably only about six months after that. And so um, am I answering your question, Sid, about uh, what was the distinction there? Yes. Okay, very good. Yeah, so then, you know, once John recognized Jesus as the Lamb of God, John said, he must increase, I must decrease. You know, he had done his work calling the nation to repentance. The people were turning back to God, and then he kind of did a handoff to Jesus. You know, talking about baptism, it's an important uh, subject, Pastor Doug, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. We have a book. It's called Baptism. Is it really necessary? Again, there's sort of divided opinion today, even amongst Christians, as to baptism. When is a person to be baptized? Is it really necessary for salvation? And how to do it? Yeah. How? What you, name? Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. A lot of confusion. So we'll be happy to send this book to anyone who calls and asks. It's called Baptism. Is it really necessary? The number to call for that is 800-835-6747. And if you're in North America, we'll get it in the mail, send it to you. If you're outside of North America, you can read it by going to the Amazing Facts website, just amazingfacts.org. And, of course, if you're in North America, you can also go to the website and you'll be able to read it there. Thanks for your call. We've got, uh, let's see, uh, Angela is calling from Illinois. Angela, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. I have a question. In the New Testament, was it the Pharisees or the Sadducees that did the sacrifices? I know that... Um, in the Old Testament, the Levites were um, through the through Aaron, right. um, the heritage. But um, and then I have a uh, follow up. After Christ's death, uh, was sacrifices still being conducted? You know, because of course he was the sacrifice. But I just I don't read that, and so I, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, good questions. All right, let's see if we can. I think we can answer both of those pretty quickly. Um, as far as the Pharisees and Sadducees. Neither the Pharisees and Sadducees really served in the temple to baptize, um, to offer sacrifice. Um, uh, you could be a Pharisee, but you had to be a Levite. Now, you could have a Levite that was a Pharisee, meaning that they were, um, the Pharisees were the devoted ones. They were consecrated in a special way. They, they weren't going to pollute themselves with paganism. Now, there were some Levites that also followed the Pharisee rules, but you could be a Pharisee and not a Levite, like Paul was a Benjamite. So Paul never offered sacrifice. Same thing with the Sadducees. But uh, many of the Sadducees were uh, from the priestly family, like Caiaphas. 
So here they are offering sacrifice, but some of them didn't even believe in angels or resurrection, which is really pathetic. Uh, at the time of Christ, the church had fallen pretty, um, pretty badly. And um, the second part of your question, did they still sacrifice after Jesus died on the cross? Well, the veil was rent when Jesus died on the cross. They probably had to re- you know, repair the, the veil, but they probably reinstituted the uh, form of a sacrifice uh, up until the temple was destroyed by the Romans. You know, there's another verse talking about that, Pastor. When, when uh, Jesus left the temple for the last time, he said to the religious leaders and to the Jews, your house is left to you desolate, meaning that he had disowned the sanctuary and thus the sacrificial service because he was the Lamb of God. Right. And then there's a prophecy that you find in Daniel chapter 9 that's talking about Christ, the Messiah, and it says he will put an end to sacrifices. And it's talking about his death. Right. So there's a number of Old Testament passages and also in the New Testament it's at the death of Christ, there was no need for a sacrifice. Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Right. So, But they still probably went through the form yes. of a sacrificial system until the temple was destroyed, but it was meaningless at that point. Right. Thank you. Appreciate your call. Next caller that we have is Robert, listening from uh, New Jersey. Robert, are you there? Yeah, good, after, uh, good evening, uh, Pastor. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Um, my question is concerning... What's the first way recorded in the in the Bible? Now this says, um, and the the fall of man, which is a uh, Genesis three, uh, three I think it's three four, where the serpent says to uh, the woman, uh, "You you might surely die." That's usually considered the first lie that was a, that, that was a recorded. But then somebody pointed something out when she was a, discuss, having a discussion with the serpent. So you must not eat from the fruit of the tree. This is um, Genesis 3, 4, I believe, or 3, 3. You must not, you must not eat uh, fruit from the tree, but you must not, not even touch it or you will die. Now, that's, um, we don't hear that with uh, God saying it to Adam. So did she make that up or, or did, or did uh, was that added on later or, or uh, did she, did she uh, get confused? What, what's the... Um, what what would that be? Was she lying or? Okay, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like Eve is adding something to the instruction that you see earlier, where God says you're not to eat from the tree, and uh, I don't think Eve made it up because they there was no sin until she ate the forbidden fruit. Her heart was pure and innocent; she had no reason to lie or deceive. Uh, I think she was expanding on, or rather, I think she was giving more information on what God had told Adam and Eve. Keep in mind, the Bible is summarizing. I'm sure that God said many things to Adam. The Bible tells us, you know, God and Adam spent that day together naming all the animals. So uh, I'm sure there were many things that God said. Um, the way that, you know, it's first recorded for us is God says, don't eat from it. When you hear from Eve, we realize God not only said, don't eat from it. He said, don't touch it. So you stay away from it. Of course, touching it led to eating from it. And so they, they're kind of, you know, the reason you would touch the fruit is because you wanted to pick it and eat it. So I think that uh, there's not a lie involved on Eve's part there. I think she's absolutely sincere when she's talking to the serpent. All right. Thank you. Cool. We've got uh, Abdiel listening from Florida. Abdiel, welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you for having me. How are you guys? Good. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Uh, So I just had a quick thank you. So uh, I found your program in December and it's made a big difference. Well, praise the Lord. I had a question. Uh, I'm in Luke. So in Luke, um, it, it seems like there's a very earnest man called Simeon, mm-hmm. and it seems like he already knows that the Messiah is coming in his lifetime. 
Right. Um, and I think there's a couple others that, that could have happened to maybe like Anna, I hear. Uh, so I guess I, the question is for both of you, John Ross and Pastor. Uh, so is it possible that to have that kind of relationship with Jesus today, that, you know, if you're diligent, that he can tell you basically like, hey, and you might not tell you a date, but he can tell you like in your lifetime or something. So I'm not really sure how that goes, but. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, the Lord, of course, gave a divine revelation to the shepherds about Jesus coming. And there was a divine revelation that was given to the wise men of Christ's uh, coming. And uh, then Simeon said the Lord had told him that you will not taste of death until uh, you see it, you know. And uh, he said, now let your servant depart in peace, for I've seen his salvation. Could that happen again before the second coming? You know, God is not restricted. The Lord could impress anybody that, um, you know, you're not going to die before you see these things be fulfilled, that would not replace Scripture. And God is not going to give the day and the hour to anybody because Jesus is very clear, no man knows the day or the hour. But can God give an impression that, uh, sure, he's, he's the Lord, he's not restricted. And even after Jesus ascended to heaven, you know, he appeared to uh, Paul and to some others. And so uh, Jesus still communicates with people today. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Simeon as well as Anna. She was also the one that um, confessed Christ to be the Messiah as a baby. The Bible does tell us in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, that Anna was a prophetess. So um, God had spoken to her through dreams or visions. But either way, whether it was through a direct revelation or through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, these two individuals had a very special, very close connection and communion with God and of course, their hope, especially for Simeon, was, Lord, let me uh, see the promised Messiah before I die. And God honored that, and he got to see baby Jesus. That's right. Amen. Well, thank you. Hope that helps a little, Abdiel. Appreciate your call, and encourage you to keep listening. We've got Karen listening in Texas. Karen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Okay, my question is, I had heard that Jesus wasn't born in just a regular barn, but that he was born in the special barn where the perfect sheep was taken care of before they were going to be used for a sacrifice. Okay, and you're, you're wanting to know what the Bible says about that? Yes, had you heard that? Um, I had not heard that. I've heard several things about, you know, some people that try to extrapolate on giving more details about the birth of Jesus. But the Bible simply says that um, she brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus, and they laid him, they wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and they laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. So the assumption is a manger is a trough uh, in which you feed animals. And it's interesting, a trough is where you hold grain, and Jesus, who is the bread of life, was placed in a bread basket, you might say. And he was born in a town called Bethlehem. And the word Bethlehem means house of bread. So here you have the bread of life put in a bread basket, born in the town that is called the house of bread. And uh, that in itself is interesting. The other thing is that this is sort of a, a reverse of what happened at the death of Jesus. The birth of Jesus, he enters the world. The... the um, troughs they use, the mangers they use for food 
uh, in spite of what you might see Christmas time on a corner, they usually carve them out of stone. Uh, a donkey will chew up a wooden trough. I, I used to have horses. <laughs> so they carved them out of stone. And the manger uh, could have been located in a cave. Around Bethlehem, it's a very rocky country. And a lot of people say it wasn't a barn, as you think of, you know, on the east coast of the U.S. They got these big red barns. But it was probably more like a cave where the animals would uh, stay out of the rain. And so some have wondered, isn't that interesting that when Jesus entered the world, he was placed in a stone box and wrapped in cloth and he came to life. At the end of his life, he's placed in a, a virgin tomb that had never been used before. Jesus was put in a virgin womb and that he was wrapped in cloth. There's a Joseph at the birth of Jesus and there's a Joseph at the death of Jesus. And it's just, uh, it's kind of interesting. So we, you know, I, I doubt it was a typical barn. It may have been a cave. It may have been a shed but where the animals were protected. The Bible doesn't say. So everything anyone says about it is pure speculation. Go into detail. Yeah, the Bible gives very little detail. It just says she brought forth her son and they placed him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Hey, thank you, Karen. We sure appreciate your calling and I hope you call back again. Uh, well, Pastor, do we have time for one more call before we if take we, a break? Yeah, get a quick question maybe. Let's go to Bradley in uh, Arizona. Bradley, welcome to the program. We have about a minute and a half before the break. Hi. Say on uh, Revelation 22.2, my question is, if we're in heaven and we have glorified bodies and we have access to the tree of life, why do we need the leaves for the healing of the nations? Yeah, and it actually says in Ezekiel, and the leaves of the tree are for medicine. And Why would we need medicine? Well, you know, the way it's worded here in Revelation, it doesn't say the leaves of the tree are for the healing of sickness. It's the healing of nations. And, you know, now here in this world, people are all divided by their, their languages and their cultures and their races and in heaven, those divisions will not exist. As we all gather under that massive tree of life, um, under its shimmering leaves, and eat from that fruit that helps perpetuate life, that all of the divisions that have separated the nations here in this world will be dissolved. And so it almost makes it sound like it's the healing of the nations. There's going to be no sickness in the kingdom. And uh, there may be some... Uh, some he not healing is not the right word, but there might be some vitalizing power to the leaves. You know, uh, what happened to Popeye when he ate spinach? <laughs> so you, <laughs> you can't rule it out. God's got, I think every part of the tree is going to be edible. So um, they say they got that, what is it, the baobab tree there in Africa and Australia that you can eat its fruit, you can eat its sap, you can eat its leaves when they're young. They're like spinach. They say just every part of it is a tree of life. So don't know. That might be the answer, Tim. Anyway, hey, thank you very much for your question. Don't go away, friends. We're going to take a break. And we're going to come back in a few moments. We've got uh, more questions lined up. We see those of you who are standing in line. Hang on and uh, endure to the end. We'll get to your phone calls. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. Find out what the critics are raving about. Top scholars and theologians from around the country come together to reveal the hidden history of the book of Revelation. With powerful reenactments and incredible visual effects, this 95-minute masterpiece brings to life the book of Revelation like never before. Revelation is no longer a mystery. Get your copy today. Visit iTunes or afbookstore.com. 
Life can be overwhelming. Where can an on-the-go woman find quality time with God? The new Amazing Treasures of Faith box set from Amazing Facts empowers your devotional life with inspiring resources that will bring lasting peace into your busy life. This beautifully designed box set by women for women comes with a 31-day devotional, recipe and scripture cards, and special messages from Pastor Doug and Karen Batchelor. Get your Amazing Treasures of Faith box set today. Just call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Terror attacks, natural disasters, political instability, and global economic meltdown. These are the images people generally associate with the tribulation and the day of the Lord. But did you know the Bible speaks about another day of the Lord just before the great judgment day? Amazingly, imprinted on the very fabric of time itself is a 24-hour period called the Sabbath that was meant to forever be a time of restoration for every human being, a day the entire world is largely forgotten. You'll be surprised to learn how this special day of the Lord factors into last day prophecies such as the mark of the beast, the seal of God, and the great final tribulation. It's all contained in this new eye-opening DVD series called The Last Day of Prophecy. To order, Call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And this program is here for that purpose, to do our best to answer your Bible questions. So if you have a Bible question, you can give us a call. The number 800-GOD-SAYS, 800-463-7297. And we're going to get back to the phones. My name is Pastor Doug Batchelor. My name is John Ross, and we've got uh, Faye listening in Washington. Faye, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. How can we help you? Um, I was just wondering if you could kind of explain the Antichrist. Um, we'll do our best. Like what what exactly it is. Yeah. And then like other, you know, religions, different churches being in heaven, different religions. Okay. Yeah. Well, first of all, will there be, uh, well, I believe there'll be uh, Christians from many denominations in the kingdom. So the idea that uh, only one denomination has a... Uh, copyright on the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I do think it matters what you believe, but I think that God has sincere people that are uh, in many Christian persuasions. Uh, On the first question about the Antichrist, now you find the word Antichrist five times in the Bible. Interestingly, it is not found at all in Revelation or Daniel. It's found in 1 John four times, the first letter of John, and in 2 John it's found once. And notice what he says here. It it tells us that... um, 
My little children, this is 1 John, uh, let me see, this is verse 18 of chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour, and you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know it's the last hour. So even in the time, Antichrist means against or opposed to. So there were leaders back then, powerful leaders that were opposed to Christ, one of them actually put John in boiling oil and God miraculously survived. But the main Antichrist that we, we find that is this little horn power from uh, Daniel chapter uh, 7 and 8 and uh, 11, um, that has been identified, most uh, Protestant Christians identified that with the papacy. And I know folks are shocked to hear that, but I'm just telling you that... Uh, if you look at uh, John Wesley and John Calvin, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, uh, you just kind of go up through the history of the great Protestant preachers. They said you cannot escape that, that beast power that you find. For example, if you look in Revelation chapter 17, it talks about a woman, and that's a church, that has become unfaithful, sits among seven hills. Rome is the city of seven hills has a golden cup in her hand. The golden chalice for the mass is considered the most sacred vessel. And they looked at chapter 17 of Revelation, and by itself they said, this is that Antichrist power. So I know that doesn't, uh, that sounds like, uh, you know, hate speech, but I'm just telling you what the Protestants, how they interpreted prophecy. We have a lesson on that. We do. It's called, Who is the Antichrist? And I think, Faye, you'd enjoy to anyone wanting to learn more about what the Bible says. This is pretty deep prophecy, so um, it's important, though. And The Bible talks about these various powers and kingdoms and countries in the last days. We'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number to call is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the study guide. It's called, Who is the Antichrist? And we'll send that to anyone who calls and asks. Next caller that we have is Daniel listening in uh, Colorado. Daniel, welcome to the program. Hi, uh, I have have a question. How do we know if the dinosaurs uh, were dead in Noah's flood? Okay. Um, now, we, we know a lot of animals died, not just dinosaurs, but lions and tigers and bears died in Noah's flood. The only ones that were saved were the ones that were brought on the ark. The unclean animals, those that could not be used for either food or sacrifice, uh, they came by twos, and the clean animals came by sevens. Now, when you say dinosaur, a dinosaur are these big thunder lizards, and uh, they are giant reptiles. Uh, there are a, a whole species of creatures that are extinct now. You could argue and say, well, we still have crocodiles, and we still have, you know, uh, what do they call them, um, these giant monitor lizards and the Komodo dragons and I want to say Komodo tractors. <laughs> and so you've got all kinds of uh, great reptiles that are still in the world today. There also used to be giant mammals. Uh, you know, they, they had, what was it, sloths that were 13 feet tall and beavers that were eight feet and uh, just a lot of mammals that were, and bison that were as big as a house. So all of the creatures kind of were shrunk uh, during the flood. Uh, I, then you read in the New Testament, I'm sorry, you read uh, following the flood, there was this mighty hunter named Nimrod. And mighty hunters don't hunt mice. Mighty hunters hunt big animals. It could be that Noah had preserved two of some of these greater reptiles 
and they all got killed off like the dodo birds. They were extinct. So, um, you know, they're all gone now. And uh, all we've got is the fossils of some of these giant reptiles and even mammals. But thank you. You know, uh, we've got a book. We've got a, a book that you would enjoy, Daniel. It's, it's got pictures, too, about the dinosaurs. It's our magazine by Jim Pinkowski. And uh, if you go to the Amazing Facts website, type in dinosaurs, and you'll see our color. It's kind of like a comic book Bible study. I think if you're seven years old, you'll really enjoy that. All right. Thanks for your call, Daniel. We've got Lee listening from North Carolina. Lee, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much. Hi, pastors. My question, please, is about the Holy Spirit. I know that after Jesus left, he sent the Holy Spirit to the apostles. Mm -hmm. My question is, what about the Old Testament prophets and, you know, just God's faithful, Jehovah's faithful? Did they have the Spirit? I mean, did they just have it and not know it? I mean, I guess the Trinity started right at the beginning. I know Jesus was prophesied about right from the Garden of Eden, but I just didn't know when does the Holy Spirit enter. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for your question. We sure appreciate it, Faye. Uh, you, the Holy Spirit has been around, of course, since the beginning. There in Genesis, where it tells us the Spirit moved upon the face of the waters, right there at the beginning. And you go to the last book in the Bible, the last chapter, it says, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And you read, you know, in the Old Testament, it tells us the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. And then you read where um, Moses brought 70 elders to Mount Sinai to present them before the Lord, and the Lord put his Holy Spirit upon them. Well, it actually says he took the spirit that was on Moses and put it upon them, meaning God's spirit that God had given Moses, the same spirit. And when the Bible tells us that Elisha prayed for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, well, that was the Holy Spirit. And David, when he says in Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, um, so there are many, many passages in the Old Testament uh, where you see the Spirit of God. Now, you don't see the degree of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave the apostles until after the sacrifice of Christ. The power and the miracles that were wrought by the disciples was unparalleled by virtually any Old Testament character save Moses and Elijah. But here you had 12 Spirit-filled prophets going out and preaching about Jesus. So, in other words, you're saying, Pastor Doug, the Holy Spirit has always been active uh, since the creation. Mm -hmm. He's been speaking to the hearts of men. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. So the Holy Spirit was speaking to the hearts of people even before Christ came. Uh, there were some God-fearing people who loved the Lord. And, of course, miracles did occur in the Old Testament as well. Some mighty miracles, even being resurrected from the dead. Yeah, the word, uh, the, the word spirit is found 617 times mm. in the Bible, and many of them are Old Testament references. So right. Thank you, Faye. Hope that helps a little bit. And we do have a book that talks about the need of the Holy Spirit. You can download that uh, or ask for it for free. The number to call is 800-835-6747. And again, you can ask for that uh, book. It's called The Holy Spirit, The Need, and we'll be happy to send that to anyone who calls and asks. Next caller that we have is Kevin listening from uh, Mississippi. Kevin, welcome to the program. Yes, hi. Uh, so I was just wondering when a person when do, when do a person needs to be rebaptized? Okay, good question. Um, if a person falls, at what point do they need to be rebaptized? Now, uh, a person can fall off a step, and they usually don't get too hurt. If you fall off a cliff, it's more serious. There's different kinds of falls. It's normal for a Christian, uh, as you're following the Lord, to uh, slip. 
you know, James says, uh, in many things we offend. And uh, as the sparks fly upwards, so the children of men are prone towards doing things wrong. So you know, it's, it's commonplace for Christians to sin in thought or action. It should not be the pattern of their life. And that's why we, we pray and we repent and we look for God's ongoing mercy. John tells us if we sin uh, to confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. And then we have the Lord's Supper as sort of a new beginning that's like another level uh, where we um, partake of that grape juice representing the blood of Christ and the, the bread representing the body of Christ. And in some churches like ours, they even participate in a foot washing service. So we try to reenact that new beginning. So for in most cases, when a person, you know, they, they make a mistake, they might want to uh, just look forward to that communion service and get a new beginning. If a person divorces themselves from the Lord, they stop going to church, they stop confessing Christ, and they drift away when they come back, and they want to make sure that they're committed and they're back, they may need to be remarried. And that, that would be, uh, and you've got examples of this uh, in a few places in the Bible, but um, we have a book on baptism that will probably answer that question. The book is called Baptism, Is It Really Necessary? And again, talks about baptism, also rebaptism. We'll be happy to send that to anyone who calls and asks. The number again, 800-835-6747. Ask for the book, and we'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls. Thank you for your call, Kevin. We've got Helen listening in Florida. Helen, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Hi, thank you. My question is, it's concerning um, Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 and 10. Um, I, I guess I just need clarification on, on the bride of Christ. Like, who, who is the bride of Christ? Uh, let me just read this. It says, then one of the seven angels, this is Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and a high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So the dwelling place for the people of God is the new Jerusalem. So it calls the new Jerusalem the bride. It's not the buildings. It's the people that will live in the buildings. And so in the Old Testament, they sometimes referred to Jerusalem as the city of God. Well, God is not marrying stone and two by fours and plaster. It was the people that lived in the city. And so the New Jerusalem, again, is the people, the church. Now, one reason we know this is if you look in Ephesians chapter 5, I think Pastor Ross, where it says, husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So we are to love our wives as Christ loves the church. The church is like the bride of Christ. Yeah, that's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. There you go. You know, one other thought on that, the New Jerusalem is described as the bride of Christ. Of course, Pastor Doug says it's going to be populated by the redeemed. But Jesus has also promised a kingdom. The Bible talks about a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And Jesus is going to be the king of kings and lord of lords. The capital of this new kingdom on earth at the end of the thousand years when the earth is recreated is going to be the New Jerusalem. And the amazing thing is not only is the New Jerusalem the capital of a world recreated, but the Bible tells us that God is going to be in the city. Christ is going to be in the city. In essence, it becomes the capital of the entire universe, the place that had fallen uh, into sin, redeemed now through the sacrifice of Christ, is elevated as 
the center of the universe because yeah. God's going to dwell with these people. That's an incredible thought. Amen. And you know, I think we have a lesson that's called the Bride of Christ. We do. Yeah, that, uh, we can to send it out. Again, the number to call for that is 800-835-6747. Just ask for that uh, book. It's called The Bride of Christ. It's one of our amazing facts study guides. And you'll enjoy reading that. It's got a number of great passages from Scripture mm-hmm. talking about that subject. Thanks for your call, Helen. We've got Chris listening from uh, listening here in the U.S. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the program. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Good. So I'm not really sure how to word this question, but I'm a, I'm a baby Christian just since August of last year. But my question is, would it be a characteristic of God to allow a marriage born out of sin to end and then use those two people uh, newly converted or one of them newly converted for his purpose and then bring that marriage back together built on a godly foundation? Yeah, I want to make sure I understand your question. So you're asking if um, you've got uh, a a couple, one is converted, they are married, and can, are they separated and they're coming back together again? Can God use them? Um, can you try and maybe restate that again? Because I, I didn't catch what you were saying. Yep. So you have two people who entered into marriage uh, built on sin okay. in the beginning. And uh, so God dismantled that marriage and allowed the divorce. And now one of them is converted and being used for God's purpose or God's will. And then God brings them back together after he's through or, or brings them back together on his timing. Would that be a characteristic of God? Well, I think that if you've got uh, two people and they were married and they, it, it fell apart for whatever reason, and one of them is converted, if they're legally divorced, if they're th- one of them's thinking of remarrying, I wouldn't remarry unless they're both agreed on being Christians. Can God do that? He absolutely can. Um, but I would not re-enter into a marriage where only one was converted if they're already legally divorced. So um, it'd be great, you know, if they're, you're still friends and you can do Bible studies together. And uh, if you could uh, come back together and that can be a testimony. I've seen that happen before. So, yeah, can God do that? He absolutely can. We got a book mm-hmm. talking about the subject of marriage. It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. And I think it'll answer a lot of your questions. The number to call for that is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the book. It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. Thanks for your call, Chris. We've got uh, Jamima listening from Canada. Jamima, welcome to the program. Good evening, Pastor Ross and Pastor Dog. Evening. So my question is... Um, does God um, allow us to be punished when we are being um, arrogant and boastful and if we mock the Lord? Because I uh, from the book of Daniel, I read here, um, Daniel 4, verse uh, 23 to 27, this is talking about um, the seven years of illness of King Nebuchadnezzar. So God made King Nebuchadnezzar in are mad for being so um, boastful? Yes, uh, it certainly is true that God often punishes pride. Pride was uh, the first great sin of the devil. And it tells us in Proverbs, a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You can read in the Bible where King Herod was boasting in Acts chapter 12 
and he was taking the, the prerogatives and the worship that belongs to God, and the angel of the Lord struck him, and he died. And you can see where the Pharaoh hardened his heart through pride, and he was judged and punished. And uh, you've got the proud Pharisee who says, I thank you, I'm better than other men. Uh, so yeah, pride is one of the most offensive things to God, and the Lord wants to save us from pride. All of us struggle with pride in varying degrees. But... Um, it's very hard for the Lord to reach an arrogant person. That's why he wants us to humble ourselves. It says the meek will inherit the earth. There's a verse in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, that says pride goes before destruction and a haunty spirit before a fall. Mm, well, that's right. pretty clear right there. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks for your call, Jamima. We've got uh, Ashley listening in Washington. Ashley, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm just wondering if it is appropriate to decode the book of Psalms. I've been seeing a lot of different pastors talking about it, and I'm just wondering if it's appropriate or biblical. So are you talking about where they sometimes take the Hebrew letters and they say the Hebrew letters in Psalms have different numerical value and there's prophetic meaning when you look at them that way? Uh, or are you talking about when they find messianic prophecies in the book of Psalms? Um, a little bit of both. The, the big one I've been seeing is that Psalms is the um, 19th book in and the 48th from the end, so leaning to 1948, and that Psalms 48 uh, leads to the, re, um, the rebirth of Jerusalem, and they've tied a bunch of other prophecies to it. I just wasn't sure if it's biblical to go off that. Okay, now I'm glad you clarified it. Yeah, what you've just described there is uh, it's kind of like Bible study voodoo. I, I don't think that God intended for us to take the chapter numbers and try to make anything out of that. Chapter numbers were not part of the, uh, you know, the inspired uh, message that God is giving us. Um, and you, so if you start taking chapter numbers and the Psalms, the way they were arranged, you know, different, some actually have arranged the Psalms where they take the Psalms of David and they put them in a different category with the Psalms of Solomon and the Psalms of Hezekiah. The way we get it in the King James Version, they're all bundled together. But to start trying to interpret the Psalm numbers and chapters and verses uh, where you're mixing up the numerology and trying to create secret messages, that's just, uh, yeah, that's, that's like Bible bingo. Uh, that, I don't think there's any message in that at all. Uh, now, what does blow us away, the Psalms are supernatural, when you read in Psalm 22, where it says, they pierced my hands and my feet, and they gambled for my clothing, and dogs have surrounded me. That's an incredible prophecy that talks about Jesus on the cross. So those things are very powerful. But to start mixing up the numbers and trying to get messages out of that and make dates, and nah, I'd stay away from that. I hope that helps a little bit. All right. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Ashley. We've got uh, David listening from Illinois. David, welcome to the program. Well, hello, pastors. How y'all doing tonight? Doing great. Thanks for calling. Uh, my question is about the last generation. With Adam and Eve, when they eat the, when they had eaten the forbidden fruit, God told Adam, "For this day you shall surely die." Well, one day for God was like a thousand years for Adam, and he lived to be what nine hundred and what nine nine hundred and thirty years. Okay, and then with Moses, he told Moses that he can see the promised land, but he cannot enter it. So when he did see it, he died right after. 
And the same thing with the uh, priest that saw the that saw baby Christ. He was told that he would see the Christ, and right after that, he died. I guess the heart of my question would be: with the last generation that shall not die, how will that play out? Will it be like with the last person of the last generation, or what? It, it's a question I've been contemplating for quite a while. All right. Hey, thank you so much, David. Appreciate your question. Um, you know, it is fascinating that God told Adam, in the day that you eat thereof, you will die. And yet the Bible tells us in Second uh, uh, Peter chapter 3, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And uh, Peter's actually quoting from one of the Psalms where it says a thousand years in his sight are as an, an evening that is gone. And so, uh, God said to Adam and Eve, you're going to die in the day. Well, they began to die spiritually as soon as they sinned. The death process began. As a matter of fact, it tells us, I think, in the Hebrew, in dying you will die. So it's a dying process will begin. But they didn't make it to that first millennium, that first thousand years. If a thousand years is like a day, Adam and even Methuselah and all the patriarchs died before they reached that first millennial day. Um, but as far as the last generation, I, I think there's going to be a lot of people still alive when Jesus comes. He's going to protect them and bring them out of this world, just like he saved the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he protected them from the uh, 10 plagues. He'll protect a lot of people from the seven last plagues. What do you think, Pastor Ross? Can we squeeze in one more? Yes, I think so. Let's go to uh, Michael in Montana. Michael, welcome to the program. Good evening, pastors. Can you hear me? We can. We've just got about a minute. So can we do it? It's um, a speculative question. Um, say Adam and Eve did obey God and and pass all the tests that Satan threw at them from the tree. Um, what would have happened to Satan and his angels? Would God have thrown them in some corner, or they would have just disintegrated? I mean, it's just speculation. But I've been thinking about this. Okay. Well, it's fair enough. You're right. It is kind of a speculating question because it's you know you can have a hypothesis of what would happen. It's hard to know without having the mind of God and being able to interview him. But it could be that if every if every world had passed the tests, I believe God has other unfallen worlds that Satan probably tried to recruit, but he found supporters down here. If every other world had passed the tests and Satan couldn't find any other followers, God probably would have uh, just destroyed Satan and his angels because it says in... Um, Matthew 25, that the, the angel and his devils will be thrown in this lake yeah, of fire. Matthew 25, verse 41. Yeah. So their destruction was sealed, and, uh, but the way it works now is anybody that follows the devil is going to join him. Hey, thank you so much, Michael. Appreciate that. We do have a lesson called, Did God Create a Devil? And it touches on that subject. And The number to call for that is 800-835-6747. Again, you can ask for the study guide. It's called, Did God Create the Devil? Now, friends, just so you understand what's happening here, we're going to be coming back for two minutes of rapid-fire Bible questions that you email in to us. And so don't go away. Otherwise, for those on satellite, God bless, and we'll study together again next week. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Welcome back, friends, to our uh, special 
part of the program where we're going to answer your Bible questions that have been emailed in to us. If you have a Bible question, you can just contact Amazing Facts, send us an email through our website. Well, Pastor Doug, we've got uh, several. Let's see how many we can get through in the next two minutes. Question number one, was Melchizedek God? Well, no. Of course, Melchizedek had the Spirit of God, I'm sure, but the Bible tells us that he was a king and he was a priest of a particular territory and he brought out food, real food, to Abraham and his friends and he received tithe, which back then probably wasn't money, but it was food and practical things that they had won in the battle. He was a real person. And I just talked about that last week. If they want to go to Facebook and see my, or two weeks ago, I, I dealt with that. Okay. Next question that we have is, uh, question is, is tithing only to be paid to a church or is it okay to give tithe to somebody in need? Well, there's an example in the book of, I think it's Deuteronomy, where when they went to a feast, they could take a second tithe and they could maybe use that to help with the poor along the way. It was sort of like charity during the feast times that they'd, they'd show. But the, the first principle tithe, the Bible says the tithe is holy to the Lord and it was given to the Levites. And that was for the proclamation of the gospel. It wasn't to be just, you know, distributed however a person said, I'm going to send it to my favorite ministry. It was to be going for the proclamation of the gospel. Okay, next question that we have. How do we know that good angels are with us? Well, God promises that. I mean, I think there's things we can do to probably grieve the good angels that are with us. But the Bible says the angel of the Lord encamps round about those that fear him and delivers them. And it tells us in Psalm 91, he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. And so uh, God does have guardian angels watching us. Okay. Next question. Uh, did Cain marry his sister? And if so, where did he find her? Well, he found her probably pretty close to Adam and Eve. Uh, um, he, yeah, he married his sister. And um, back then there was nothing wrong with that. Technically, Adam sort of married his sister and Eve. They both came from the same family. And it wasn't until the time of Moses that it was forbidden to marry close of kin. Okay, last question that we have, Pastor Doug. Could you quickly explain three days and three nights that Christ was in the heart of the earth? Does that mean the tomb? No, that's talking about the sufferings of Christ that began in the garden when he said, now is the hour of darkness. So that would be Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. He was suffering for the sins of the world. Hey, friends, we love your questions. We look forward to getting more from you. And tune in again. We'll study his word together next week. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.